All right, guys, breaking news. We've now provided fractionalized ownership of making it up. So if you guys want to buy an NFT within, you can have access to future income derived from this podcast. No, just kidding. For a second, I wouldn't have put it past you to actually have done that without me knowing about it and to have just announced it now. At least I could get behind that because it's actually a more true representation. You're, I was just, you're, you're welcome to do it. I have no, yeah, I, would, I have no opposition. I'm not going to be the one who does it, though. I don't know if there's like this is the one thing that's actually really fascinating is I don't know how uh, securities laws apply to that so are you familiar with like securities laws like yes. sec there's like yeah that, that was a big thing in 2017 2018 because some tokens were deemed to be securities mm. anyways that's actually beyond what i have the capability of speaking about i've not even the beginning yeah. of an they probably that would be cool they though, probably right? don't know yeah there's this thing they called the howie test probably the sec probably hasn't made a decision no they have not This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really, we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep going, you can support us on patreon.com slash Let's go. Back to what I did mention. Imagine if there was, just for the sake of argument, like 100 tokens and you bought a token, you would you'd be granted 1% of yeah. income or revenue or whatever. Of, of zero. 1% of yeah. zero is We We reserve zero, the right to guys. not put any ads on this thing. Yeah. But you would still have 1% of hypothetical revenue. Okay, can I turn off the... Can I switch this light? That light is always actually in my face. Oh, sure. We it don't is, want people outside to see us. We are recording again from FM Below Ground. Yes. Run by Yeti Out from the basement of landmark in hong kong you go first i feel yours is uh, a little bit more interesting as a topic i guess one that i'm more passionate about let me that's hard to find interest not did you did you see my little chart that i did yeah good math good math we well i say we eugene listed seven different subjects in sorry for the last one eight subjects in the make-in discord about 24 hours ago, and people voted on which subjects they were interested in. Um, there was quite a lot of feedback this week. I wonder why. I don't know. Um, good, good selection. And then Eugene had to do a little chart to figure out which were the winners. So. Quick maths. My subject, I think this was the most popular one by far, is titled Against Performative Positivity. And it is written in Futures magazine by a designer, researcher, and educator named Dana Abdullah, who actually got her PhD. Yes, I knew that. The same I place I got my master's. I didn't send it to you because 
I don't know. That's kind of a weird thing to send somebody. I actually already came across this. So you're familiar with their work? Open secret is that I don't read every briefing and I don't read every briefing. She doesn't care. Top she to just bottom. doesn't care sometimes. Maybe I just don't have the bandwidth to care. Anyway, not defending myself. Um, even when I was sleeping more, I was still not really reading every briefing. I came across this article separately. Even before it was in the briefing. Wouldn't be the first time. No, it's not. Wouldn't be the first time that Sharice magically came across an article that she, air quotes, found on her own. I roll. I roll from Sharice here. I mean, what he should really be, what Eugene really should be criticizing me for is not then sending them to you. Read all this stuff. Hoarding. Don't send it to Hoarding you. Hoarding this quality material. Anyway, <laughs> Dana Adula also studied at Goldsmiths, same as myself. She's currently lead of the design program at Camberwell in London. Is that a school? Is that a university? What is that? It's a university. Oh, it's right. a school of a university. So it's mm. the design school. Got it, got it. Of the University of the Arts London. Anyway, that's a lot of detailed background information that people don't really need. So this essay that she writes is basically this argument. Designers are afraid to dissent because it disrupts the positivity bubble. She goes on to say designers perform a lot of optimism, but optimism is not always constructive and actually gets in the way of politicization. And to change the world positively, you have to embrace pessimism. And Eugene is particularly interested in this subject because he is always the hater in the room. I don't know how I adopted this perspective. I do actually think it might date back to just like... Trace it back. Early was there ever a moment when you were less of the hater in the room? No. But I think that if you want to be an editor, you also just have to like own it. Being a hater? I would well, say like, that there are probably editors who aren't, but okay, go on. And they're shitty editors because they let everything pass. They don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But All right, so think back. You know what? The, How did it start? So I think if I look back at just like the expectation around streetwear back in the day was everything was whack. Except your own shit. <laughs> like, well, I think that also is a way that you need to think about things and frame it because if everything is deemed to be good and like you're not hating on other people's things, then like there's it it almost I always always look at critical analysis and hate whatever. If you if you want to overlap those two, I think that's fair. I, I would say they're no, different. No, I think they're different. Uh, no, mm, no, mm, mm, you don't no, think, no. You, what? no, I think they're similar. Critical analysis and hate are not the same thing. They, that's not saying there's overlap. There's the little Venn diagram middle part. Okay, fine. But, but at its very core, they're in some ways a negative take. Obviously, hate yeah. starts and stops at negativity. Critical analysis starts with like, a dislike of something or a belief it could be done better. Yeah, I agree. That's, oh, so there is a overlap there. Well, I, I agree in the sense that like hate is a much shorter duration. Yeah. You hate something and you're like, you dismiss it out of hand, you know, like, I don't, that's whack. I don't like it. Yeah. But critical analysis is starting with that and then going deeper into, well, why is it whack? And so now what? Yeah. Now that I've made that decision, like, what do I do with that? When I come across things, I'm naturally dismissive before I'm in acceptance. So I start from a position of dismissiveness. And I don't know if that's coming from 
you know what? If I have to trace it back, like even back at Hypebeast, like you had to have a level of dismissiveness. Otherwise, you would just post everything. And I think through that lens itself of being like, quote unquote, oh, you're like a trendsetter, blah, 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 whatever that shit is. Let's <laughs> let's skip over that. Well, you that's what I was saying, even, like back you, in the day. You did not even want to say those words out loud. It's the easiest way to cut through it, but you honestly had to look at stuff and be like, okay, you know what? This is, this is good. This is not good. Sure. And you had to defend it. Sure. You more certainly had to defend it. That was ingrained into me quite early on. But I would probably also argue that in the last few years, we've had to be more dismissive of things because of various reasons. Whether you mean it's in defense of our attention? What do you mean? Like, as in, you need to be dismissive of things because if you weren't, you would just fragment your attention in a million different ways. No, I think I'm dismissive of intent. Okay. I'm dismissive of if news comes across my plate, I'm not familiar with the news source. Even if I am familiar with the news source, I always feel there's an ulterior motive. Like oh, media, okay, I got you. Yeah, you, yeah, you gotta news. get, like if yes. I'm gonna, yeah. If I'm yes. gonna say fake news, yes. if I'm, if I'm so gonna say- So I was thinking more about products. We're kind of talking about different types of things. I was thinking about, well, I was specifically thinking about Clubhouse. Yeah. Where I think part of it is not actually, like I'm able to separate my personal feelings towards Clubhouse as an example, as a product, and a critical analysis of it. Analysis yeah. of it. And my critical analysis is not, totally negative because mm -hmm. i do see ways in which it can be used for bridging communities and mm -hmm. opening up doors but i personally am not interested yeah right but you're actually talking about media or that's what my understanding yeah. is which i completely agree because of the way media landscape is now you have to read everything with like a bucket of salt yeah like the new york times isn't even safe in no that not at all you have to like What's what am I doing? Like unentangle, yeah, detangle, yeah, everyone's intentions and like hidden subtext now and words. It's, it makes reading very difficult for me. It's it's quite disheartening too. Like I mean, I look at a lot of shit. You look at a lot of shit. It's like having to come to terms with fact checking and just creating a mental fact checklist. Not even for some sources anymore. Before it was like I've never heard of this source. Now it's like everything. Yeah. Uh, so we've been kind of going on about our own optimism and pessimism in reaction to different things. This essay does specifically talk about design mm -hmm. and designers. Yeah, let's, let's reel it back into that. Yeah, let's. We're, I'm going to talk a little bit about what Abdullah says about design specifically. The author writes that design allegedly, like design, design and designers say that they transform the world. You know, a lot of people write these lofty manifestos on what design has the power to change and how design can be used as a tool to bring about really transformative change. But in actuality, design solutions are incredibly conservative compared to these claims that people make about what design can do. And Abdullah is quite clear cut about this. She says, you know, designers make junk and they coddle people with convenience. They make a lonely, materialistic, and competitive world. This is a quote. We are triggering new emotions and desires in consumers rather than imagining different ways of living. Again, look at our inability to imagine anew when we have been given an opportunity. I define design not as a solution-oriented, problem-solving discipline, but as a realm of possibilities that acknowledges that there are alternatives 
these possibilities and alternatives to the alternatives. Here is the connection with emancipatory politics and hope, which are meant to make what is deemed impossible seem possible. So, so essentially, can I repeat back to you to see if I yeah, understand yeah, yeah, correctly? Because I, I do find it quite complex. Some of it's a bit dense. Yeah. So in short, what she's advocating for is that we actually need to be more provocative as designers, or if you are a designer, you need to be more provocative in establishing new boundaries and writing new rules. Yeah. I wouldn't use the word provocative. I would use the word radical instead yeah. of provocative yeah, because it's not about yeah. it's not about getting a intense reaction from people, but it's more about actually proposing, like you said, new rules, new frameworks, actually different possibilities, as she says, and alternatives to the possibilities. And Abdullah goes on at length to talk about consumerism and capitalism and the way designers participate within it rather than actually uprooting anything significantly. So she raises an example how for a long period of time, actually kind of currently still, you can get a lot of products that say things like the future is female on it or women run the world or other slogans like that just printed on notebooks and t-shirts and stickers etc and this is this is just an example i'm not trying to say we should go into a deep conversation about feminism this is an example of how designers are just doing this veneer of supposedly political action which is not action at all yeah it Mm. is just a continuation of capitalism and consumerism i do have a concern though well, I don't think it's a concern. It's more about putting forth a suggestion as to why we start at such such a low-hanging fruit. What do you mean? Can you elaborate? The future is female is yeah. this catchy slogan that we all believe is part of a much larger problem. But because it's so bite-sized, it's easy for people to like immediately grasp onto it in hopes of pulling them through to a more complex idea. Because I think that everything she mentioned speaks to a level of design that only professionals will ever really understand. And if design is supposed to be done in a way that will impact us all, it has to be created in a slightly more lower common denominator. Otherwise, you're just going to lose people through the complexity. Hmm. Well, I'm... I don't think that, you know, the products that say the future is female are totally useless. Mm. As in, I think there is a purpose they serve in terms of, as you said, spreading awareness, gaining attention. But the criticism is that with designers who should be doing more, it's often that the action starts and stops there. Yeah. That this is something designers do to look like they are doing good to appear to be doing the correct thing yeah as opposed to actually taking significant systemic changing action but that organizing but that action goes beyond just a graphic right oh yeah so but it can still be design like maybe it's not visual design but yes, design is quite encompassing. I don't disagree. It's just that it's so much easier, for better or worse, to encapsulate everything into a hashtag 
and my this was always the thing it's like to get people to, to open up to a new idea requires some sort of gimmick in a way i can say that in a, it could be seen as a pejorative but it's also just like you need some sort of hook and my concern is actually there's a lot of things that make it a little bit more challenging for you to go too deep because this was a big concern of mine or this is i guess retroactively something i i recognized with Macon was that when we first launched there was so few areas of grounding for someone to just like come and look at what we did within the first 10 seconds and grasp an idea of what Macon was sure so like even this podcast like the first one you listen to the topic on the subsequent shows will be different but are you able to generate that own thread on your own it's actually really tough but you know i think that I, abdullah doesn't really talk about and maybe this is a criticism she does not really talk about a external audience yeah. she's really more talking about individual decisions and actions as a creator and designer and yes like we know those things are related but i think at least this essay addresses what a designer says that they are doing and concerned about versus what they are actually doing mm -hmm. and what they could consider I mean, none to of, do instead. None of us are going to disagree that there's an overwhelming level of superficiality around everything. Well, just a, I mean, some people might disagree with us. Mm, <laughs> all right. I will, I will create time to uh, debate you anywhere, any place over that. But, <laughs> but you understand that someone like Abdullah is, is at the top of the design analysis pyramid, something I just made up. And we also recognize I that mean, everything can be a pyramid. So I, I just accepted the fact <laughs> that this could exist. It's a pyramid. So a first year designer or a designer that taught themselves Photoshop, I don't know if they have the underlying foundation to actually push something bigger yeah. and better. And I don't think that's like necessarily a bad thing. It's just like the, the democratization of you entering this space. It's kind of like there, there have been, I'm sure there's tons of other industries. Let's call, um, say, a, a sommelier, right? Like you actually have to go through quite a bit of rigorous testing to actually hold that title. If you do hold that title of a psalm, then like actually that carries quite a bit of weight. But obviously there's nothing that exists like that. Anyone can be a designer. I could be a designer. I could fire up Microsoft Paint if I wanted to call myself a designer. You can be. Yeah. I'm not saying that's not, that's off limits. Yeah. So there's actually one thing I thought she said that's quite interesting, which is that she said even on the awareness campaign level, designers don't do a very good job. This is her critique, okay? This is a quote. Even then, we are incapable of practicing the very profession we engage in on a day-to-day -day basis. When it comes to politics, we are bad at branding, bad at advertising, bad at persuasion. Look at most efforts put towards educating people to wear masks, keep their distance, and wash their hands. And that is a very blanket statement. And I feel, you know, everything comes with a disclaimer. Like, you know, there are probably people in the world who have done a great job of mm. doing CDC guidelines and telling yeah. people to wash their hands. But I agree. The, the vast majority of educational material out there, whether it's like COVID related or political campaigns, is not very good. 
And we do do, as designers, a much better job with, like, Nike or Coca-Cola or other. Why do you think that is? I mean, we know why. It's it's both probably budgets and the actual freedom to design something. I guess if that's the problem, you know, a lack of freedom and a lack of money, it takes designers having to define their own projects separately. Mm-hmm. That doesn't address, you know, how do we keep on living and how do we put a roof yeah. over our heads? I mean, the one thing I do enjoy about this approach or this framework of being far more critical and trying to escape this bubble of positivity is that success is often based around overcoming challenges and problems, right? So the quicker you analyze and put forth a problem, the more visible it becomes, the more time you have to think about it. Versus if everyone's just super positive, like everything seems so straightforward and when there is no bump in the road. Yeah. And if you don't actively look for the bump in the road, when it does hit you, it could severely derail your momentum, your movement, et cetera. Which is why like, I, I'm somewhat pragmatic in that sense because I'm always looking for, well, where can this go wrong? Yeah. Yeah, and also Abdullah says that in general, and I think she she refers to designers, but again, th- I think this is a general statement for people, is that having optimism actually distances us from realism because it's forcing a, you know, it's like rose-colored glasses, rose-tinted glasses, mm-hmm. like that phrase, right? You're forcing yourself to see the world not quite as it actually is. And so you've, You've put yourself as at a remove. And when the world does come like crashing realistically in, you're in for like a complete shock that yeah. would, you know, I don't know, have terrible side effects yeah. at that point in time. Yeah. You know what you had said about like the first year design student? Yeah. Abdullah wrote something that speaks to me personally. I mean, the entire essay is very critical. There is quite a lot of criticism in it for design educators, which is funny because the author is a design educator themselves. But basically she says like design education sells students this dream that like design can change the world, but doesn't properly equip them to think about it or talk about it. As in the education is insufficient for what it advertises itself as being able to do. Yeah, I I would definitely say that Great design, we would both agree, solves the problem. But if you're not actively seeking out what is the problem, then the outcome will always be mediocre because you're potentially solving for a non-issue. Also in my experience, yeah, non-issue. Also in my too much experience, I feel like now, in art and design school, is that people are often attracted to really big problems without wanting to understand them at a complex level like let's say poverty so many people will genuinely okay like be really drawn to these big world problems like poverty and hunger and then try to like solve from that starting point Mm -hmm. without thinking of you know the very 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 many like infinite list of factors or like all of the different types of people and groups that are involved in that subject. 
And I think there is a bit of a breakdown. Like, I don't know. I don't think students are necessarily at fault for like wanting to be drawn to that. But the system, the education system doesn't discourage them from approaching problems that way. I, I, I don't know. I don't I've never thought of myself as a pessimist. I genuinely think of myself more as an optimist overall. Oh, I, I think most people think I'm a, a pessimist. But it's not like I don't get excited about things. It's just that there's a much higher hurdle for something to come across my plate and for me to get excited about it. I mean, and there is a distinction between like being a pessimist or a realist and being hopeful. Like you can be both realistic about the world and still have a hopeful attitude. A question that I've been encountering a lot from other people is whether the action that they take to solve problems has to be separate from what they do work-wise. Like, you know, you want to use your creative skills to solve a problem, like do a campaign or make illustrations or publish a book and things like that. But there are a lot of people that say, actually, is the next step that I protest or I get involved with a local politician do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like this other type of work that actually doesn't have to do with like my creative skills Mm -hmm. yeah i I think that it looking back on some of the bigger movements of the of more recent times people often questioning if they had any meaningful input and or could they add to what was going on do we relegate ourselves to just the good old net positive and something's better than nothing. Taking a harsher analytical approach helps you figure out more quickly what the next move is. Like if you if you analyze like something you want to do and you're super harsh on it, you can either decide how much do I care about it? Is it something I can solve my own? Uh, now that I have more information about it, do I still care? Like there's a lot of things that I think pop out. I guess it's a, it's in many ways applying a very thick layer of honesty to see what are the next moves and and it just becomes so much more clear because when it comes to optimism i would say that the velocity of optimism is somewhat binary like if you're optimistic it's just positive but i think when you enter into the realm of analysis critical analysis it's more on a range. I see. And then I think that I the range saying. that you drive something down could inherently allow you to find a solution faster. But when you're optimistic, like there's no pressure, there's no friction. That that I think is actually really important. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. That when you're optimistic, you give yourself fewer choices. And when you're pessimistic slash just realistic then suddenly there's there's like i like the word range a lot there's a lot more range yeah and people who think things in that way with critical analysis and pessimistically there's um greater variation in how we're going to view the situation but probably all optimistic people are going to view it the same yeah that's quite good this is something that i've recognized most recently is that now that we're la- we're allowed to go out and play football, play soccer again, like 
I've almost found myself even more critical knowing that everyone's coming off like a three month layoff and whether it's myself, my teammates, like being extra critical because you quickly get people up to speed faster versus like going easy on them. I mean, I would, I would never play any sport with you. That's fine. But I'm just saying like, the, the, <laughs> it, it, it's like this, this painful shorter duration because the intensity of discovery is so much higher. You know, it's probably not something that most people are going to subscribe to. But I, I think that if you need things done faster, like this is actually one thing that I recognize is that when I, like I've, I've heard a lot of people say this to me before, like when we play sports, like let's keep it positive guys. And I'm the, I'm like the fucking first guy to rip into somebody. Like you kind of just need to step up, like stepping up. Okay. Will- but listen, I agree with you in terms of performance like getting performance from athletes and in like a team sport setting, but your way is not as fun to most people. And we've talked about this sports wise as well. But if you're trying to, your outcome is victory. Okay. In this football setting, but, but not all people get fun from victory. No, but if they get fun from other elements, but this whole thing is about designers quote unquote changing the world. Yes. That's yeah, what yeah. I'm saying. No, no, like, totally. If I you're just actually going to change the world, I just think you that can't your just fuck football around. experience is uh, unique for someone who plays recreational football. Yes. <laughs> you know, Very earlier, important point. Yeah. <laughs> Sunday league. You know, earlier you were saying how like your initial reaction to things is to be dismissive. Yes. And then you follow that up by being openly honest about it with other people. Yeah. So I have learned this about myself is that my gut reaction to things is also to be dismissive. So I sit in meetings or I listen to people talk about their ideas and my gut reaction is usually like these are the things that I'm critical about. But I don't say that as my first thing out loud. I go I go through a second step where I think, okay. You're like a sandwich commenter person. I'm the sandwich commenter person. But I also think it's a good thing in terms of perspective when working with other people. Because my second step, which I didn't even finish saying, is that my second step is I think about, okay, where is this person coming from? Like, why does this person think that their idea that they're presenting is a good one? You know, like I try to have some amount of empathy for whatever their context is first. Yeah. Before I give the critical feedback. I don't know. It's helped me. I think it's good. I don't have time for that. All right, then. <laughs> well, no, it's just like, <laughs> hey, you know what? You're asking for an opinion. That means hopefully you're looking to improve on something. Just okay, this is not totally related into it. It's not totally related to like optimism, pessimism. But I was reading this thing online. I forget what about how people won't remember over over many years, they're going to forget forget the projects that you did together. They're not going to forget the feeling of working with you. And if you believe that, then it makes you want to be like a person that people enjoy working with. But being critical for a moment is not the same as being someone undesirable to work with. Yeah. It's not like you're a dick all the time. Like it's not like I'm running over to my teammate and punching him out. You know, it's yeah. like. 
just give them a little bit of a hair dryer treatment. It's British for yelling at them. Did you know that? No, I did not. Yeah. Anyways, you just yell at them. And then after the game, you grab a beer and then everything's back to normal. Anyway, should we move on? Let's do it. All right. My topic this week is building self-worth as creatives. I added that part by myself because I think we need to bring it back into the world of creativity and creators. And this is an article by Ward Andrews. This piece comes courtesy of design.org and it examines the relationship between identity and self-worth. So the author Ward leads off with a quote from Dr. Christina Hibbert that explains the differences between self-esteem and self-worth. Self-esteem is what we think and feel and believe about ourselves. Self-worth is recognizing I am greater than all those things. Self-esteem doesn't last or work without self-worth. And according to Andrew, he distills it as self-esteem is about what you do and self-esteem is about who you are. And and here's a quote from the piece. Your self-esteem is about how you see yourself, your abilities, your talents, your choices. It puts a subjective lens over your life. You judge yourself based on how good or bad you think you're doing in any given area. That determines the esteem you hold yourself in. Your self-worth, on the other hand, is constant. He goes on to discuss why we don't put worth into ourselves, and it comes down to, and this is a list he put together, confusing self-worth and self-esteem. We think we're worth less or worthless if we haven't done what we wanted to. In our heads, we make our worth conditional. Second point, we let others diminish our worth. If you let them, other people can tear you down and lower your perception of yourself and your worth. And the third one, we lack perspective. As imperfect human beings, it can be difficult to see the forest for the trees. When we only see what's right in front of us, it's easy to forget about the dollar that's locked away where we can't reach it. And he used the reference of a dollar because he's like, your self-worth is like a dollar that's locked away that you can never spend. It's a philosophical concept of intrinsic value. Yes. Oh, good one. That's what this piece reminded me of, but it's so it's a bit of a departure from the self-worth for creatives. Mm-hmm. But the dollar analogy about how when you're born, everyone has a dollar that no one can take away. Wait, is that actually can't. like commonly used? No, it's oh, not okay. commonly used, okay. but the idea of intrinsic value is a commonly discussed yeah, yeah, one, yeah, yeah. which is this idea that every human life completely regardless of what you do after you're born has the same amount of value. Mm -hmm. So whether you are, you know, whether you live a day or whether you live a hundred years, same value, whether you make a million dollars or you're a million dollars in debt, whether you murdered 20 people or no, seriously, like that's the philosophical side of this, right? Which is that it does not matter what you actually do. Each human life has the same amount of value. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Yeah. So then he goes on to discuss that self-worth benefits from zooming out. So I've I've actually just pulled the part I, I've I felt was the most important. I think zooming out is one of the parts that I appreciate the most. He's suggesting that we assess everything from afar and from a macro level. From there, you can acknowledge your weaknesses and your strengths. As we know, like identifying your strengths yields confidence, right? If you know you're good at something or you're relatively competent, okay, that's like something I can hang my hat on. And then likewise, when you identify your weakness, it showcases humility and honesty. By doing that, I think that it really helps you come to terms with 
how you are in this sort of like universe, if you want to call it that, right? Like if you understand what you're good at, what you're not good at, it allows you to position where you can have the most worth. Well, and it I also is related to what we talked about in terms it, of realism, because it's having an accurate self-assessment. You mean our first topic? Yeah, our yeah, first topic. Actually, halfway through that discussion, it clicked quite profoundly. Like, oh man, these two are actually super connected. One of the things that I find most interesting about this piece is it tips back into the first one when it makes you question, well, why aren't people going about and kind of sticking their neck out? Is it because they don't feel like their opinion has enough worth? Are they like, you, you understand where I'm trying to get yeah, at, no, right? Yeah, I do. I do. I'm thinking about it. Because I'm wondering, one's lack of confidence, is it because they don't sense that their the words or the work they create is strong enough to come out and like actually make a difference? Or do they just not understand the quote unquote brief and the problem at hand? I mean, it can be a mix of factors, right? Yes. But that's one thing that I always wonder is like, we've... We've noticed in this social media era that a lot of instances of mental health and whatnot are real issues you have to deal with because of maybe a lack of self-worth. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is quite a serious topic. I mean, it's not really related to the taking action bit, I think. Like, you know, there are people who have a strong sense of self-worth, but don't think that that translates into taking like world-changing action yeah okay for that's a factor fine. of reasons yeah and then there are as you mentioned we've seen a lot of people be honest about having low self-worth mm-hmm. which is due to you know i agree with those three points that you made you know I, well, sorry that the, the author yeah, made yeah yeah Confusing self-worth and self-esteem, letting others diminish our worth, us lacking perspective. You fully understand the self-worth versus self-esteem argument, yes. right? Can you explain it further? Because I feel like I don't fully grasp it. Self-esteem is tied to what you do. So if I link self-worth my... Self-worth is that we have intrinsic value. It's the dollar thing. Yeah. So me tying the work I create as my identity, that's self-esteem related. It should be self-esteem related, but a lot of creators tie it to their self-worth. Ah, see, that's the part I was confused about. See, a lot of creators tie their actual sense of worthiness to the validation of the work that they do. So if... Versus their own perspective. Versus actually having just being a worthy human being separate from your work. Mm. So like hypothetically let's say there's a photographer and their work gets picked up in the new york times and the la times like all these national global papers and then they go on and do like you know a gallery show at moma and then they sell work at christie's okay yeah then a photographer who has that trajectory and confuses self-worth with self-esteem will have very high self-worth because it's been tied to like the work that they do. Mm. However, the healthier way to go about this is to separate the two. Because what if you don't get the global papers or the gallery exhibit or the Christie's auction, you know? Okay, this is potentially a dumb question. Sure. But, (laughs) sure. 
But I'm prepared. Hit me with the dumb question. What do we gain when our self-worth is in fact tied to our work? As in what we create is actually somewhat in our control. What do we gain? Yeah. So for example, like the opposite would be. I I think we can lose a lot. We can lose a lot. But I also wonder like, obviously if you're in a place where your success is predicated on someone else's perspective, how does that change? I don't think we gain very much. Like you just said. No, like for. By tying it to other people's. By tying it to external validators. No, that's bad. Like, if yeah, there's a bad. gatekeeper, that's if bad. there's a gatekeeper. Exactly. But I'm saying, like, if we actually value ourselves based off of the work we create, do you know what I mean? Okay. There's yeah. A small, like, no, I get what you're there. saying yeah. now. Okay. Because so I, like, I control the, I control what I create, what I produce. But you're talking about like the work you create that maybe never even sees the light of day. Potentially, like, but I wasn't going to go to that. Well, I don't know. Extremes are easier to think about. Yeah. So let's say you're a beat maker and you make lots of beats and actually no one ever hears them. You just make them at home. Is it okay to tie your self-worth to the fact that you made these? I think so. I think so. Because then if you think it's the best shit, then your self-worth is very high. In an interview I had with Gavin Goudry for the How I Got Here series, he said that he actually thinks this is related to intrinsic value. He thinks that everyone is a creator. Mm-hmm. Any person, whether they do creative work for money or not. They're creating spreadsheets. <laughs> As in they have the ability to make stuff. Like you you make things and put it out in the world that didn't exist before. And it's a little bit romantic, admittedly. But I think it's related to what you're saying about like having self-worth be based off of the action of making, of mm-hmm. just doing, of being a person who makes and does things. Yeah. Which I think is fine. I think it's dangerous when it's related to, as we've been saying, external perspectives and flashy validators like big names and big outlets and things like that. Yeah. And obviously, like to clarify, I mean, I think it's pretty clear, but it's dangerous because if those things don't exist, then you wind up hitting rock bottom real quick. Mm -hmm. Why do you think this topic was among the more popular ones today? As in, why do you think this discussion around self-worth self-esteem is such a prevalent thing for creatives and why do you think it's so hard to solve actually i think i know why like we all recognize why it's difficult but i think creators recognize that it's a problem but don't know how to change it for themselves Mm -hmm. i think a lot of creators know that i shouldn't be valuing myself based off of how much a client is willing to pay me or if you know, 10,000 people share my work or a million or whatever, but it's really, really difficult to fight that instinct. Mm-hmm. People are talking about it in the Discord quite regularly in yeah. different ways about that back and forth internally about wanting to grow a company to a certain size, wanting to have a certain type of audience for their writing. It's really hard to be confident in your self-worth just in a vacuum yeah have you ever struggled with that yeah all the time but now that i'm so honest with myself or i've just recognized how to leverage the honesty it's like it doesn't really weigh on me anymore so for example if i go into a situation i know 
where my safe spots are. Like if something is, is outside my realm, don't even try to be like an expert. Like don't even try to, how do you put this? Actually a better way of looking is like, look at from the context of listening for speaking, right? Where, what are topics and moments that you most likely should listen? And where are moments where you can drive a conversation by speaking? Like, I'm not saying that's like, that's just like a very active way of approaching it. Because if you understand your strengths and weaknesses, you know where you immediately are situated in an interaction. So you just, you just remove that layer of uncertainty. I know I talked about that in my editor's letter. I was like, oh, like these moments of uncertainty are, wasn't necessarily pertaining to this topic, but it's just like, you kind of want to know what you're getting yourself into so you can either add value or you know where to be careful. I think another practical reason why it's so hard for creators to work themselves out of this mindset is we've talked about this before, how much of society is comparative Mm -hmm. right now, intentional or not. We look at each other's work a lot. It's natural to see what other people are doing and think, I would like to do that. Mm -hmm. That looks really cool. Um, I wish I was in that position. You know, and another thing I think about the nature of doing creative work for money is that the people who give you money subconsciously diminish your self-worth because clients will negotiate you down. They will ask you for your follower count. They will ask for lists of, you know, where your work has been published and I understand why they do. I'm not saying that therefore clients should stop doing this, but I think just that system results in you equating your self-worth to certain things. Yeah, because those are those are quantifiable stats. Yeah, and you spend time thinking about it. You spend time presenting yourself in that way. Yeah. So it, in order to think about yourself differently is running counter to like this system that you have to work within. Yeah, if I look at that point, I mean, there are, there are moments where I look back on things I've done. I think my Instagram, my Twitter are good examples. Like I've, like I've experienced decreased follower count since whenever, right? And you're thinking, so, oh, like, am I not interesting? But then at the same time, like, <laughs> oh, maybe I don't, maybe it's something that I don't really care about. But I also have the luxury of not caring about it, right? If I'm, 23 years old and I need to rely on my follower account to get me a job it's far different so I, I I admit that like I'm kind of over that time horizon of needing this social currency so as much as I want to say it doesn't phase me it's because I have the luxury of it not phasing me yeah so let's just be yeah like yeah and both of us benefit from a, a range of external validators and I, I think that as I get older too, like a lot of the conversations I have have shifted from being forward facing conversations for opportunity to more behind the scenes. So that's another way too, where I, I know that my ability to influence a conversation is not based off of front facing public metrics. But that's also, once again, it's like it's everyone's career trajectory is going to be different. Yeah, it's so dependent on the type of work you do. And I think a lot of people out there 
don't do that behind the scenes work. Yeah, they just haven't gotten to that point yet. And that's also a matter of time. Yeah. Think about your good friend, Jasper. Mm -hmm. He has a lot of accolades that are recognizable. Mm -hmm. And he didn't used to, but I think, you know, that's got him to where he is, whether he like wanted it to be that way or not. Yeah. And I think like for illustrators and artists who are starting out at the beginning, without that, it looks like it's a much more difficult road. Yeah, totally. Totally. That's all I got. That's it from me. I think that's a good place to wrap things up. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories, focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via Patreon.com slash Macon. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.